Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome Chia Mechi, Emerging Market Strategist with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Very timely conversation today as we will dive into some takeaways from the recent IMF World Bank Spring Meetings, which took place in Washington, D.C. So, Chia, thank you very much for dropping by the podcast. Looking forward to hearing your takeaways, your insights from the meetings. I understand a lot was covered. So thank you for spending some time with our listeners and their clients. Thank you, Dan, for having me. Looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. And up front, I do want to point out for our listeners as well as our clients of UBS, a couple of publications which tie right into the conversation we're about to have. Takeaways from the IMF World Bank Spring Meetings as well as LATAM Takeaways from the IMF World Bank Spring Meetings. Both of these publications available now up on UBS.com slash CIO. Though, of course, for clients of UBS, simply reach out to your UBS financial advisor if you would like to receive copies directly. So with that, let's dive right into the conversation. Maybe she is a good starting point for those who did not attend. I understand you attended the meetings virtually. Can you speak a bit to some of the key messages and themes you took away from the meetings? And were there any particular areas of focus amongst the participants? Yes, of course. So um, thank you again, Dan, for having me on the call today. Um, I was I had the opportunity to attend a number of seminars with policymakers, academics, and investors from all over the the world. And the main areas of focus um, on the global and developed market side were the further contagion and stress in the banking sector, U.S.-China relations, um, imminent recession, and the impact of the continued war in Ukraine. On the emerging markets and Latin America front, the focus area was on the emerging market economic recovery, and then in Latin America specifically, the role that the region is playing in the ongoing global supply chain shift. Thank you, Chief, for sharing those takeaways. I know we're going to dive a bit deeper into an array of regions across developed and emerging markets, maybe beginning with the United States. Can you speak a bit to the overall outlook on the U.S., what you took away there? Yes, of course. So, for the U.S., I'm, I'll approach this by covering kind of three main areas of, of focus. These were the recession, the Fed's next steps, and also um, the very topical issue of the U.S. debt ceiling. Um, on the recession, we picked up a consensus among participants that the most likely near-term outcome for the U.S. economy is, in fact, a recession. It was highlighted that recessions are processes and not one-time events. And so some participants believe that a recession might already be underway, especially following the negative credit impulse dynamics um, after March's banking stress episode. Um, At the meetings, there was even a president of a very very large U.S. bank um, who described that delinquency rates and credit cards have already crept up to pre-COVID levels and loan defaults are building up. Um, Views are quite diverse on whether this recession would be a shallow or deep contraction with a key differentiating factor being the ability of the Fed to preserve financial stability and also considering the vulnerability of regional bank balance sheets to commercial real estate lending, 
will be a key thing to watch. Um, on the Fed, investors in attendance expressed that current market pricing of the Fed's interest rate outlook, with several cuts baked into the second quarter, um, baked into the second half of this year, seemed unlikely to materialize. Um, I think most expected steady interest rates throughout year end, and notably central bank authorities in attendance sounded quite hawkish, um, highlighting the risk of cutting rates prematurely and then needing to pause again if inflation continues to persist. Um, the view was that, again, there, there, there's definitely a low likelihood of rate cuts in the second half of the year. Um, and just on the U.S. dollar, um, there was a consensus view, although not high conviction, um, that the U.S. dollar will continue to weaken. And then I'll just round us out with the, the debt ceiling. Um, on this topic, there was a lot of anxiety-dominating conversations, right? Um, everyone, I think, continued to hope that, quote-unquote, we'll always get out of this. We'll, we'll get out of this as we always do, but many definitely highlighted the realistic possibility of a breach and default. Um, the most quoted number in terms of a probability of a technical default was 35%, with some analysts leaning on the leaning on the higher end um, of a probability. Um, I think one, one interesting thing was a former Treasury Department official mentioned that we may be reaching the, ce the ceiling earlier than expected, given the likely late tax receipts coming from states like California, Missouri, and Con Kentucky, and then possibly lower receipts um, on the back of capital gains losses from last year. Well, it's interesting to hear about these varying perspectives on a range of important topics spanning the debt ceiling, the outlook for monetary policy, and of course, where the U.S. is in the economic cycle, all topics top of mind for investors at the moment. You did make mention of U.S.-China relations as a recurring topic. We've been covering that for quite a few years here on Top of the Morning. Interesting to hear about some further takeaways. Anything there you can elaborate on for? Yes, of course. So I'm, I'm going to elaborate on this, um, you know, through a lens of investment and trade relations. Um, we attended a lot of discussions um, on these topics between the two countries. And so in terms of U.S.-China relations, um, observers definitely expect the U.S. Ex expect some U.S. executive action on outbound investment restrictions to materialize soon, as well as an expanded export control regime. The U.S. House Select Committee on China, led by Representative Mike Gallagher, um, is, is, is something that participants believe should closely be watched. Um, there's an in-depth report that's due to come out um, from this committee by the end of the year, and it's something that investors are keeping an eye on. And even though... Um, and like, these discussions don't translate into immediate legislative action, it will definitely set the tone um, for U.S. policy in the coming quarters. So the overall direction of the relationship between U.S. and China um, can also be affected by a range of contingent issues, such as Chinese military action along the Indian border. Um, and despite all the noise around French President Macron's visit to China, um, U.S. and European views on China 
were viewed as likely converging over time, with some differences, of, of, of course, um, specifically illustrating your, your talks of de-risking um, versus entirely decoupling from China. Well, it remains a very delicate relationship and a lot of elements, factors you pointed out there, Chi, that we'll continue to keep a close eye on. Maybe stepping outside of the U.S. for a few moments, if we zoom in on Europe, curious as to the participants' views on the ongoing Russia-Ukraine war, which is right on the doorstep for many of those countries and has been ongoing for, at this point, over a year. Right, Dan. I mean, virtually... Nobody in attendance saw um, an, an, an end to the war in Ukraine anytime soon. Um, I, I think the, the very broad view was that this war has changed Europe forever, right? Um, it's reinvigorated the, the continent's arms industry and drastically altered its energy security approach. Um, in terms of Putin's approach to the war, He's seen as relying on exhaustion as a strategy and is paying particular attention to any cracks that are widening um, in terms of the U.S. supporting Ukraine. Um, most participants at these meetings, however, thought that Europe and the U.S. would continue to stand behind Ukraine as long as it takes for them to continue and prove victorious in this war. Um, and the likelihood of direct armed support um, from China to Russia was seen as very low um, and was seen as only possible under a scenario in which China was convinced that Putin could fail because of a weak, because a, a weak or collapsed Russia um, was definitely viewed to be unacceptable for China. It's interesting to hear some boots on the ground takeaways, how Europe is viewing this ongoing war, and hopefully a resolution is achieved sometime soon. We'll continue to keep an eye on this. Now, we've spoken a bit about the U.S., China, as well as Europe. Maybe, Chi, can you share with us some takeaways on broader emerging markets as well as Latin America? Yes, of course. And so um, within broader emerging markets, many in attendance underscored the resilience of the large emerging markets um, in the context of lower global li liquidity and the recent banking stress in the U.S. and Europe. The view was that most large emerging markets um, had conducted their monetary policy responsively and proactively, in many cases kind of working well ahead of the Fed. Um, and these markets were also viewed to have benefited from well-regulated and supervised banking sectors. Um, I'll spend some more time speaking about Latin America just to re reiterate the focus was on the region's you know, economic recovery and the role that it's playing in the ongoing supply chain shift. Consensus among speakers was that Latin America is in a good position to take advantage of this ongoing shift in global supply chain and in the tra transition towards green energy. A lot of participants acknowledge that nearshoring would contribute to the region's structural growth, though the magnitude was viewed to be likely mo modest. Um, participants placed about 1% of additional, of additional GDP growth to some countries over the next five to seven years. Um, and while the region is really endowed with, you know, the natural resources that are crucial to 
bringing climate change innovations to fruition, um, governments and multilateral banks will really play an important role in taking additional steps um, to allow Latin America to take full advantage of these opportunities. The region is experiencing headwinds, which include recent negative shocks from COVID-19 and the war in Ukraine, as well as longstanding challenges um, with low economic growth and high levels of social discontent. So, Chi, as a follow-up, how does the current standing of Latin America play into its politics? I know we've been hearing about a lot of developments on that front spanning multiple countries in recent time. Yeah, I mean, this it's, it's definitely been a period of a lot of change in Latin America politically. Um, in this environment, you know, participants believe that voter sentiment specifically um, against incumbent governments would continue to run high and creating potential risk to democracy as well as reversals in public policies and in approaches to managing the region's nat- nat- natural resources. According to speakers at the, the meetings, recent political trends have led to a lack of coordinated and active Latin American participation on the world stage. Um, Take interregional trade, for example. This has remained flat in the past five years due to a lack of improvement in trade links and high transportation and logistical costs in Latin Latin America. Um, Given these challenges, as I mentioned earlier, multilateral development banks continue to be seen as key allies in helping Latin America countries really increase their investments in energy production, connectivity, innovation, um, infrastructure, and then also reduce those costs of interregional trade. Um, Although participants viewed Latin America as fairly isolated from major geopolitical tension, they felt that the U.S.-China competition in the region was very tangible. Um, On the U.S. front, the country is seen as prioritizing building its own relations within Latin America countries, um, over dissuading them from working with, with China. I think an interesting example that was cited was the United States' efforts to include Mexico in discussions about nearshoring, as well as coordinating supply chain capabilities with both Mexico and Canada, um, sort of building a North America block, so to speak. On the other hand, some definitely expressed the view that U.S. engagement in the region was was timid and haphazard. Um, I think just to kind of boil all those all those um, points down into a nice solid conclusion, um, Latin America again was viewed as having the potential to become a really important part of the solution to a variety of global problems, from climate change to renewable energy, critical and critical minerals. Um, especially benefiting from their position of geopolitical neutrality. Yet, the most highlighted risk was that this may become a missed opportunity, given that its leaders so far have yet to develop a plan to take advantage of these trends 
even as the region continues to experience low growth and fiscal struggles. Well, there's quite an abundance there of factors influencing the political shifts across the region. So thank you, Chief, for walking us through those. And overall, a very fascinating conversation hearing your unique perspective, takeaways from the IMF World Bank spring meetings from the seminars and meetings you attended. So thank you very much again for dropping by top of the morning and sharing your insights with our listeners, our clients. I know this was your first time joining us here on the podcast, so looking forward to many further future conversations. Thank you so much, Dan. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.